All right. So welcome to the latest episode of the Uncharted Territory podcast, where we discuss the latest in the psychedelic revolution, changes in society, consciousness, power. And here today, my guest, the co-founder of the Church of Sacred Synthesis and U.S. helicopter pilot veteran, among many other things, lawyer, Ian Benuis. Welcome. Yeah, thanks, Louie. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, so we met in April, like three months ago, down in Austin, Texas. You were putting on your first event back when you were called the Church of Silent Foxin, Genesis, which is a pretty cool kind of portmanteau marriage of the words Entheogen and Synthesis. And I guess that that will, that's what kind of sums up your your controversial sacrament. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it was uh, good to be able to come together for that, right? That was our church's uh, really kind of public coming out, like you said, in first event. And uh, better instead of like, yeah, talking about us, getting to check it out from the inside. So we, we appreciate your, your coming and, and doing that. Yeah, no, it was an awesome, awesome day out. And the weather was incredible that day as well. Um, yeah. Around that time, there was obviously, yeah, the, the kind of controversy that I alluded to, this this preprint from the USONA Institute that, that did a test on one of the sacrament capsules and didn't find any Um, You kind of said, perhaps, I mean, there was many different scenarios you kind of said it perhaps it was an unknown trip to me and actually it's a very very similar relative of Salomon perhaps it was a faulty test perhaps it was a dud sample sure yeah or perhaps they left it out on the countertop for a couple of months and uh it uh yeah oxidized and changed and wasn't wasn't it wasn't anything active anymore so yeah it's just it's just more kind of weird that uh they would be like, we found a capsule, you know, <laughs> rather than, yeah, we were able to test uh, some kind of a decent amount of it. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I, I really, really have no idea uh, how, whatever they got, how they got it. Like we said, that's the whole chain of custody uh, problem. But uh, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad it's, that they're that interested to go to that level to, uh <laughs> study what they thought might contain silmapoxin so yeah i mean perhaps perhaps you guys are onto something i mean you said at psychedelic science the conference in denver that a few folks had had well more than one but you know one quite prominent figure you know came over to you and kind of said blimey and you you guys have really shaken things up yeah yeah well i think it makes sense uh i told you i was in a conversation with william leonard picard uh, in the past couple months as part of the Alexander Shogun uh, Research Institute. And he said that there's going to be 10,000 new tryptamine analogs in the next 18 months. And uh, it seems to be there's only one way to be able to do that. And that's through the yeah bioengineering uh, revolution. So uh, yeah, a lot of people... <clears throat> to kind of build this psychedelic bubble have created these narratives on how everything's supposed to go for us to all to get approved and above board. And uh, to me, that's just another, you know, form of elitism where you got to pay and play and do these things for people to get access to the medicine. And uh, 
Yeah, I think it should be much more, uh, yeah, uh, democratic than that. And yeah, you've you've been very upfront that you kind of followed this rudimentary recipe left by um, Mr. Shulgin. And yeah, it's basically a kind of 5-MeO-DMT, which is a kind of synthetic version of, of the psychedelic drug found in the Sonoran Toad. Um, so fill fill that fill some of the water that you feed to psilocybin mushrooms with that. You you guys call it a holy salt, and it's going to infuse with the mushrooms and create a new compound. Whether that's exactly psilomorphoxin or 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 close close relative. I, th I think that's what's uh, disturbing to people is there is these people are raising millions of dollars right to get these. Uh... DA licenses and then do this testing that uh, you could do this in, in, in your basement, in your closet, whatever, that basically if you have 5-MeO-DMT, uh, you could feed it to mushroom substrates and create these new substances, but it's not that crazy at all. People just uh, haven't done their homework in their history. Joe Kingards did it in the 90s with uh, different DET, DPT, and DIPT, four hydroxylated them. Reunion Health, right, which became the field trip you had before, they have a patent on 4-hydroxylated DIPT that they've done through mushrooms. And I think it's just disrupting to the narrative when the previous way to look at making silmethoxin is in this 10-step process that only if you have the lab equipment you can do it to you can make this by feeding 5-MeO-DMT salt to mushroom substrates. It's like, how can that be? That's too much at home, do it yourself for the system to not, you know, care or respond to that. And I guess you were kind of following in the footsteps of the guys that that discovered the, this this incredible, crazy psychedelic in, in the toads, right? I mean, and they caused a stir at the time. They released a paper. I mean, that you you guys didn't even release a paper, did you? <laughs> but you know, they exactly. just they just tried they just tried it. They tried it, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Ken Nelson a uh, former army ranger summer of 1983 he went down in 82 but wrong part of the season 83 went down in uh, milk toads onto his windshield of his van and uh this, as far as right we know discovered smoking uh 5-MeO from the Sonoran Desert Toad as the first person and yeah then he went back to Denton Texas and they formed uh, the Church of the Toad of the Light where they uh uh you know Promoted, uh, actually, his his dream was 5-MeO-DMT from bioreactors. <laughs> so it, awfully, it sounds an awful lot like uh, enzymes, right, from bacteria or yeast that you can uh, go direct without any extraction from the toad or or, or anything else. So, uh, yeah, when, when Greg Lake, my law partner, and I were helping all these people with their entheogenic churches, we certainly didn't think we were going to be using what we've been learning on a church for ourselves. Uh, and yet I was looking for something that was longer acting 5-MeO. And when I found it, I'm like, oh, this is it. Then we need to protect it because this is, uh, yeah, it's unique and valuable enough that other people will seek to control that for, for monetary gain if uh, and, and, and stop us in the process more. It's secondary, but so they can, yeah, people can get paid uh, that we need to protect it. And uh, it it is unique and therefore, it's important and to me is uh, my personal uh, relationship with source. So yeah, nobody can get in between that. <laughs> so. 
Yeah, I mean, from a purely journalistic perspective, um, tinged, <laughs> tinged with, with some self-interest for me, you know, to, to have kind of stumbled across this story, no one else has created their own psychedelic, set up a church and started sending it all around the world. I mean, you, you guys are sending it, you know, to Europe, people in Asia, elsewhere in the Americas. But there's obviously some issue if, if it does have, say, trace amounts of psilocybin, yeah. but you, you guys don't seem too concerned. Well, no, I think we're concerned and we're aware, and it's more that that's why we're a church. We have to be a church to otherwise protect ourselves from the accusation that we're violating Schedule One drug laws. And uh, if there were no Schedule One drug laws, you wouldn't have to uh, create these churches. You still could and provide the container and the community and all that, but all the regulatory aspect uh, you wouldn't have. So, uh, yeah, will there be some future where psilomethoxin uh, and psilomethoxibin, you know, the stable phosphoroxalated pro-drug version of it, will be available in, uh, you know, pure molecule form? The results of uh, enzymes, uh, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, yeah, but right now it's kind of like, think of the cannabis where it's grown. Um, you're growing all these different cannabinoids, right? So it's really hard to get the cannabis plant to grow like 0% THC. So even though you feed uh, enough of this uh, 5-MeO DMT to convert it, uh, the mushrooms always want to use those enzymes in there to, to make uh, psilocin and psilocybin. But we've done tests at least where we've seen like psilocin go from 0.75%, the same strain, not holy salts, and then in the same strain growing uh, holy salts and bring that number down to 0.01%. So, but it's always going to have uh, trace trace amounts in there. Yeah, I mean, and you never made a secret of that on your website. And I guess that's an interesting parallel as well with the whole CBD trade, because when regulators do do suddenly decide that they want to kind of crack down, it doesn't take them long to find kind of trace amounts of THC in, in high street products. So, yeah, it does illustrate the issues that are kind of facing people in, in, in light of these highly restrictive drug laws. But you've kind yeah. of... You haven't got skin in the game, but you've got a kind of unique perspective here because you were a helicopter pilot during Operation Just Cause when the U.S. decided to kind of enact regime change upon Panama because Noriega, I don't know, was he not playing the game or was he selling coke to the wrong people? You tell me. Why, why, did, why did you swoop? Oh, well, ultimately, he was our guy. He'd been to every school, that you know, like military school that the U.S. offered, except, I think, for ranger school. And uh, yeah, the Colombian, you know, cartel drug organization offered him a more money, better, sweeter deal than the U.S. was offering him. And then he started kind of, uh, yeah, play, playing both sides of the fence at the same time. And so we had to go down there and man, I saw millions and millions of piles of weapons and AK-47s, just the most high tech stuff at the time. Uh, because they, that that was part of the whole, you know, guns for money, money for guns, drugs <laughs> triangle that was going on. But yeah, it was, it was, it was part of the drug war. And uh, yeah, so. 
So what led you to become a helicopter pilot in the first place? I mean, you know, lots of veterans now are kind of getting into psychedelics and seemingly for good reason. But yeah, I mean, you you seem a little bit more wavy than some of your other former comrades. So it's interesting to imagine, imagine you kind of going through military school at West Point and yeah, going all along. But I, I guess this this was sure. kind of, you know, 40, 40 years ago. You went in when you were 17, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, uh, my grandfather was uh, West Point class of 1926, my mother's father. And uh, yeah, so he obviously encouraged me to go to West Point, but I was I was barefoot kid from Hawaii. I'm like, that didn't really grab me uniforms and haircuts and shoes, <laughs> stuff like that. And yet I, I ended up there when I was like, well, this is a great platform to do lots of different things. And uh, w- when I went there, just like every other kid at that time, anyway, I wanted to go infantry, man. I wanted to, uh, yeah, shoot rifles and all that kind of stuff, uh, all the stuff I'd seen on television. And then real quick, when I got there, like uh, the second summer, we're doing military training for eight weeks and uh we did infantry week and it was 10 days long. That was like sign number one, <laughs> you know, infantry 10 days a week, infantry week, but it's really 10 days. And they just, you know, starve you and keep you up at night. And yeah, you start to trip and hallucinate just from lack of sleep and food and yeah. And just, you know, uh, mess with you. And then uh, I think my, that was at the time where aviation had just become a branch by itself. It wasn't before you had to go some other branch and then fly helicopters still and it become its own branch. And I was like, wow, aviation yeah that seems a little bit more uh, high tech that might be a better uh fit for me than carrying a bunch of stuff on my back kind of approach yeah and i was just really fortunate enough to go aviation to go to flight school for a year and fly uh learn how to fly blackhawks after that for like six weeks and then uh, yeah went out to my unit and within a year my being in the unit getting all trained up bam we started to go to panama for over a two-year period in the run-up to to just cause and then you left the army. Why did you leave? Sure. Well, uh, okay. So my unit had the highest resignation rate for commissioned officers in the entire army because we were just so overdeployed. Half our unit was in Panama all the time and half was training and going to other places around the U.S. And uh, yeah, the, the selection rates to major were uh, which is when you'd maybe be in normally 12 to 14 years to like make it to your 20 year retirement we're like 60 percent and i was like man that's close to 50 percent and everyone likes to think of themselves as above average but this even goes back to sugar 50 50 odds at that point I'm like that's that's not really very good to go in that long and then not make your retirement and be programmed by the army and then i knew if i separate from you know Iraq it was going to kick off but uh, I knew that if I were my next assignment was going to be out in the field again I was going to be in Europe and then going other places all the time and and uh, yeah so I said the defense industry is winding down this is the end of Reagan they were reducing the defense I'm like this is yeah this is not a place to to be and grow yeah and it wasn't as much my jam to do that as a career but uh, the, the flying stuff that, that was incredible and uh yeah uh great grateful for that so yeah and then, then i'm like okay this isn't for me for the long i'm just going to get out now and uh you know go back into s- s- the civilian world for sure and you ended up as a pfizer pharmaceutical rep i believe 
yeah, it was crazy where I got out and the jobs were for these junior military officers were either like uh, working in a plant or uh, sales. And I'm like, okay, that's easy. <laughs> sales uh, did, you know, was new, paper boy as a kid, all that kind of stuff. There were a lot of pharmaceutical jobs. And so I got a job with Pfizer and Pfizer was growing so much at that time. They'd had the two 600 person organization sales reps, you know, for sales reps, like so 1200. And then they added on another 600 while I was there and they were junior military officers. And a lot of them West Pointers uh, who were right, kind of getting out on this particular little mini downturn in the, in the military right before they were kicking off Iraq. And uh, yeah, and, and so they didn't invite me to Iraq is what was weird. But in any case, so I got a job for Pfizer, with Pfizer, and uh, that's when they were launching all the, you know, s- synthetic opiates and SSRIs. And I saw, you know, that I saw the application of that uh, firsthand. Yes, yeah, so it's interesting now that you've kind of got this unique psychedelic and the church to protect it, that's seeking to undo the mental health crisis in, in a kind of other way. But after the the pharmaceutical job, you trained as a lawyer, right? Yeah, exactly. Went went to law school, did a lot of work on myself with medicines. I got married and raised a family and do do the corporate world thing for a long time before I you know, started my my next round with veterans. So, and how did you kind of find plant medicines? You you alluded to them there. Yeah. So when I was in, uh, so I got the Pfizer job. So then I was like, okay, I'm back in civilian society. Now I knew I wanted to go to more, you know, more school, create more opportunities that way. So one decided to go to law school and, uh, while I was in law school and, uh, been married right, right before law school, uh, I, you know, I basically was doing medicine work almost every weekend you know, for like three years straight while I was in law school and that was so, yeah, whatever work I needed to do on myself, I would start doing that. And uh, that way, in my perspective, I could be a better person, better husband, father, you know, go do corporate, more corporate world stuff. Uh, I always knew if I could be in charge of myself, I'd be really happy. But, and of course, I didn't like all of us, you know, a lot of us see the see the pathway to get there. But I knew that's what, something I wanted to do. And yeah, did the corporate world. For a long time and then 2014 intersected with veterans and all these issues let's say of ptsd and trauma and you know uh, uh pharmaceutical medicines all all just came to a head and uh i've, I've been, been there uh, ever since yeah i remember seeing that vice we um video where you and a few of the other guys uh, at capitol hill smoking cannabis demanding that veterans get given the right to free cannabis to help their various issues that they've developed as a result of war. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, that was, that was really amazing. Uh, we, it was the first time all the, like, let's say veteran cannabis advocates in the country had gotten together and they were there to give an award to Sue Slisley as Americans for safe access conference. And, uh, uh, Sean Kiernan for Weeds for Warriors had the idea to go and protest the VA's policy around medical around cannabis by smoking in front of the veteran the VA's main office there, right in Washington D.C. And it was really viable as a as a protest, whatever, because 
Washington, D.C., the district had just decriminalized cannabis. Because otherwise, like, I still had a corporate job and stuff, right? And I'm like, this will not go over well if I'm, yeah, arrested in Washington, D.C. So we knew we could, like, smoke in front of it. And, uh, yeah, and, and we did that. And we did, we had no idea it was going to, you know, Vice was making it. But we had no idea if it was going to be a little video clip or any anything like that. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a whole episode. And it's really powerful. And, and, the, and the continuing story to that is that guy in there, Danny, is, is alive, is alive. He... Did go hermit for a while and then uh yeah he 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 came back out and his uh cousin who's there butch in 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 the in the episode uh you know is in the is in cabs and supports him yeah so that 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 work uh we are us all connecting together he he's alive <laughs> and now he has uh a community and he has uh yeah, more natural medicines that he can uh, use instead of the other ones. So, amazing. Yeah, that's great news. And I realize now we kind of skirted over one one event that's of interest to folks is your conversion to Islam that happened around the time that you left the military, right? Yeah, yeah. So, I guess it's all part. Of, it's really all part of the same psychedelic journey, if you like, of. Uh, finding yourself. And when I was in the army, I had an experience where I almost drowned. So in addition to all flying helicopter, you can dial the time. I almost drowned off Santa Cruz. And uh, yeah. And so when I got out of the army and moved to Austin, Texas, got divorced from my first wife, I'm like, you know, my house had burned down in California by a veteran who was had mental health issues, ended up killing himself. So I was like, wow, Source is trying to get my attention. <laughs> right? And uh, yeah, so that was kind of the uh, beginning of my uh, spiritual journey in that regard. And it was also with these psychedelics at the same time. So both of those things were happening together. And uh, I grew up in Hawaii with uh, a Christian, a Methodist Christian mother and a Muslim father. And uh, when I was young, I was, you know, confirmed in the Methodist church, was in the choir, did all that kind of stuff. I was an uh, acolyte. And then, uh, yeah, uh, when I uh, started working with uh, earth medicines after, well, really during Pfizer, but really in, in, in a big way after Pfizer, I, uh, that was the same time I, I started, started reading the Quran. And uh, yeah, a certain point in there, I was like, all right, <laughs> this is true. Now, what do I do? <laughs> and uh, yeah, I uh, that was my point of like, this is uh, what I'm doing. And eventually, let's say within a year or so from that, I started to, yeah, going to the mosque. And uh, yeah, I didn't know any better showing up there in shorts and t shirt. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, from from that point, yeah, uh, continued doing that. Did the did the Hajj to Mecca in I think around like 2006, and uh, that was the year that Hajj is you know this Islamic so lunar calendar lined up with uh, the Christmas break. So that was like perfect for people in the U.S. and Europe to, to go do Hajj that year because <laughs> you because yeah. you, know, you you kind of got to take off like at least three weeks right just to. For most people to to get the travel and uh, totally and it, and it was huge, Hajj, because of all the 
there's a lot of people that come in that aren't, you know, that, that are not, that are not in quota. And uh, because of that too, like people from, from Europe. So it was, uh, it was like uh, a, a big number of human beings to be in one place. So. 100%. And I mean, you do have a connection to, to the faith through your father, who, who was a non-practicing Muslim born in Algeria. Your, your first name, you don't go by it, is actually Kamal, right? But I'm yeah, curious, exactly. what, what part of the Quran or particularly kind of resonated with you? Yeah, and that's, you know, uh, that's obviously a good question. It, it was more the consistency in the language, right? Because not my doubting or skeptical mind, like I'm, you know, by default, right, resistance to what I'm, you know, understanding. It was just, <laughs> this was all like wo woven together, you know what I mean? There was no spots in it where you're like, well, there's a limitation right there, or there's some kind of, uh, you know, place there where it doesn't make sense. And it didn't mean that one of the things I didn't understand, I'm like, this is, I can't, I can't wrap my head around this. Yes, this is all uh, cohesive and there's nothing that's like uh, secularized out of it. Yeah. So it, it, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't that kind of specific thing. Like, like for reals, Louis, when I was uh, drowning in a rip current off Santa Cruz, it, you know, it wasn't like, Oh God, save me. It was called like, I want to live. I have to now get in a cycle of coming above the water taking in a breath, you know what I mean? Blowing it out, doing one side stroke, <laughs> right? You know, going underwater and just doing that until I live and doing that for like a half hour, 45 minutes to get out of the rip current that had pulled me out, you know? Uh, Gosh, you, you were surfing. A couple under, I was, I was, yeah, I was, I was body surfing while my friends were surfing and it was the winter time and I was in a wetsuit and I was, out of my game, out of my league, unprepared, you know, right? Just all the things you're not supposed to do. And the, yeah, the kid from Hawaii got caught in a rip current. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I didn't have time to do anything, but like, I, I want to live. <laughs> and yeah, but, and I tried to motion to my friends and all that stuff. But by the time they kind of figured out to me, I was like, you know, getting my way into the shore, right? To, uh, yeah, collapse on the beach. <laughs> Be happy to be alive. So, gosh, yeah, it sounds like it's quite a pivotal moment in your life. Understandably, yeah, totally. glad you made it, yeah. dude. Thanks, man. Yeah, I mean, my father is just I. I want to you know be 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 clean and say it's like you know he grew he grew up under the French you know, uh, wow you know experience and like the town he lived in was a town called Descartes, <laughs> and that was like a French town that his uh, great grandfather. Yeah, moved to from Mascara. Yeah, after you know, uh, unsuccessful uh, <laughs> fighting against the French in the previous, you know, in the pre previous century. So, uh, yeah. So my dad, uh, my mom and dad met in uh, in France. My dad was in the Algerian army, and then got drafted into the French army. And then they're like, "Oh, you're a smart guy." So. They let him go to school, and he met my mom, who's coming from the states on a Fulbright, and uh, they met there, had me, and then uh, they decided to come back to the states. You know, between France, Algeria, and uh, the states, yeah. So I, I I grew up here, and then I got to be in Hawaii, which was super multicultural, and you know, weed was part of the culture, and mushrooms grew on the on the calf patties around our high school, so. 
stuff, whether it was like this whole synthetic natural thing seemed much more straightforward back then. It's like, hey, it grows right here. <laughs> so it can't be bad. Totally. So, yeah. Although Asylum of Oxen or your, your sacrament doesn't exactly grow in the wild, right? Uh, this is going to be the future point going forward that the DEA seems to be fixated on in their looking at uh, Delta-8 and uh, like THCO acetate. Okay, so Delta-8 is naturally occurring, so they can't ban that because of the hemp bill. But THCO, THCO acetate, you got to do like some kind of isomerization, whatever, to CBD or this other molecule. That's synthetic. Okay, so yeah, I had a Delta-8 joint in when I was in Austin. It's just basically <laughs> hemp, isn't it? It's just raw hemp. Like they dress well, it up and it's it's expensive, but it's basically just hemp. Well, they take they take uh, CBD and then convert it into delta eight. That's 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 how they get there. So it's coming from hemp, but it it also can naturally occur in the plant, but in really small amounts. So the delta eight you're getting isn't that the delta eight you're getting is converted from CBD. Here, here's oh, wow. the point. Okay, didn't feel any different to a CBD joint. Exactly, kind of like a CBD, you know, THC, a little bit joint. Uh, and, and so on the silomethoxin thing, this is going to be important because in my in my understanding, uh, silomethoxin is naturally occurring because 5-MeO-DMT uh, grows in Phalaris grass, Phalaris, Rundinacea, Phalaris aquatica. Those grasses grow across the entire world. All the, you know, uh, <laughs> the continents, not obviously Antarctica, except for like the southeastern United States. So and we know we've heard of like the staggers or certain animals get grammy and whatnot from the grass. So any cow in the tropics that's been eating any flowers grass that has one molecule <laughs> of uh, 5-MeO-DMT in it, yeah, it could end up in the substrate. And uh, yeah, so great silmethoxin. And that's why I think the straight point of Shulgin saying, if you pour mushroom spores and 5-MeO-DMT onto... <laughs> Uh, right cow manure you can you can get this stuff so if a uh, if it, one of the, any of those animals where mushroom magic mushrooms grow a one blade of flowers grass that's got enough 5-MeO-DMT in it boom silomethoxin I'm just saying for this natural this is where the DEA seems to be drawing their their battle line so so do you guys kind of see yourselves as these bumblebee type figures kind of helping along a natural process that might otherwise be inevitable that you're just speeding along wow wow so what a what a what an interesting uh metaphor there right because bumblebees by their uh weight are too heavy to fly but like the uh, hummingbirds they do some special stuff with their wings there to get to get extra lift yeah i think we're an accelerant in that way or catalyst or whatever you prefer but it's this drug war has been on the, you know, offensive against us for like 50 years and the government doesn't seem to be really letting up too much and still fight and still resisting the, even like the, you know, the hemp farm bill and that kind of stuff and, and telling us to wait for things we already know are inevitable. So uh, for, for veterans, we can't get around the mental health crisis that we're experiencing in the rest of America is uh, that the pharmaceutical drugs, uh, don't take you on a path towards uh, getting off them. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah. So how many members do the church 
have at the moment and how many people do you think are regularly accessing and um, communing with your sacrament? Wow. So I think almost 1700 members still. And uh, well, okay. So I couldn't tell you about the numbers of people online, honestly, but we have a private discord server and Facebook groups and all that stuff. I can't tell you having gone to the uh, maps uh, psychedelic science conference, that was one of the best parts for me was the times I was uh, sitting at our booth where people came up to share, Hey, I'm a church member. I'm really happy. Uh, I've got the, uh, tell me all the amazing things they've been able to do with the sacrament or sharing it with their friends or, uh, you know, share other people that they, uh, they work with. So that, that was huge to, to be able to have that. And I just learning, uh, man, everyone's afraid to talk about these things because of the stigma, because of their jobs, because of the laws and, uh, yeah. So it was good to be in that environment where people, people could share, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the the way we hope to expand and grow is for people just to organize these local groups so they can go and start doing their own gatherings, outings, whatever they want to be, whatever they want to do, you, you, using the sacrament, and uh, which isn't any different from doing it in the same concept as using some kind of other natural earth medicine. It's just uh, this just, just happens to be a particular way to be able to see crystal around. Yeah, I mean, compared to other psychedelics as well, it's not as activating, let's say. You know, even a microdose of LSD or or psilocybin, I mean, if you really are disciplined with it and you take an amount that doesn't have a material effect, then obviously fine. But often people are kind of unable through accident to do that or they want to, yeah, have some kind of very mild psychedelic experience that that's kind of, tangible for them and so like your sacrament you know has some echoes of the mushroom experience but it's just without that kind of like activation that sort of coffee espresso hit and you know like your vision maybe getting a bit warped and then that dmt kind of heart opening and less of an ego because actually i find mushrooms sometimes increase my ego when i'm when i'm out and about yeah, well, uh, I think that's what we're learning about the neuroscience is that uh, you know DMT, psilocin, LSD, these so-called classic psychedelics work in the 5-HT2A receptor site, and that's where you uh, actively change, right? You so part of that experience is like your perspective has changed, it's shifted <laughs> through, right? You see things in a new light, you see things in a new way, you hear things in a new way. And that allows you to yeah make adjustments, and then in the 5-HT1A where 5-MeO-DMT works, that's where you uh, passively cope. So you're accepting the things that you can't change and being okay about it from like a you know your your nervous system standpoint, right? And so from our experience, from our perspective, what we've you know uh, what we believe, what we've experienced. Uh, and we have a lot of experience, of course, with 5-MeO-DMT and, and mushrooms by themselves is that uh, psilomethoxin is working like 5-MeO-DMT in the 5-HT1A. So with uh, mushrooms, let's say, you can hit that sweet spot of like subperceptual microdosing, right? Maybe less than a quarter of a gram where you could do that amount. And I've done that for, you know, uh, six, six weeks on end. But if you go above that, you get into like perceptual effects and then that just means you're gonna have to take more to get the same effects or take a break 
whereas acetylmethoxin seems to exhibit that 5-MeO-DMT effect where there's no tolerance. So if you take more of it, uh, you don't, yeah, things don't go wonky because you're not affecting that sensory data. And instead you're just, uh, as long as your environment's safe and right, you're taking care of that uh, potential ego gap, but as long as your environment's safe, then you you feel more relaxed and you're still functional. So, And how often do you imbibe the sacrament and how do you describe the experience of it in simpler terms? Sure. So really for me, it's like uh, cannabis, uh, uh, using it around other people, right? And especially with uh, the, the, the sacrament, using it in nature, do, doing something with it. And uh, that could be that could be driving or going on a road trip, which we did when we went to Colorado for maps. Uh, so, yeah, so I'm really not using it on a uh, daily basis, but more using it in, in congregation when I, ha when I have a reason to. At the lower dosage ranges, you feel the relaxation. And then at higher dosage levels with that relaxation, you feel more energy because it's activating your receptors, your system to surrender. And as long as the environment that you're in is safe and comfortable and agreeable to you, you're like, this feels good, <laughs> right? You, 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 you feel uh, happier about that. And so it's allowed me to, yeah, feel more relaxed in, uh, in some social situations in, you know, in, in, in bigger, in bigger groups of people. And, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I use this analogy a lot, but I think it's still useful. If your default mode network is at a thousand RPM, this takes it down a couple hundred. And then those extra thoughts, which for most of us are like, you know, obsessive compulsive, right. Scrubbing ego thoughts are taken down and that's replaced by something else that feels good and is comfortable. And if that's nature and other people, bam, you're, you're in a sweet spot for yourself. And uh, yeah, of course you can take more people have done more macro dosing and things like that. And that's certainly accessible. And yet as a, as a uh, true microdose, it's really, uh, yeah, it's really in the sweet spot. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. I, I can't think of another psychedelic that does have that kind of relaxing effect without causing any kind of um, sluggishness the next day, especially but everyone's experience will be different. I, I know some yeah. other people who've tested the sacrament who, yeah, certainly aren't that impressed by it. Yeah. And there's people who've taken as low as like 60 milligrams of the fruiting bodies, right? And, and they can feel it. And uh, we're, we're just learning a lot. It's a natural product. And some we've, we've seen that people who are on lots of different meds and their microbiome isn't as receptive. Uh, yeah. Can... Uh, not have effects or take a lot more medicine, right, to, to get effects. But, but we haven't seen where people take it regularly and don't get results, right? And it, taking it one off or twice, <laughs> it's just like drinking ayahuasca once or twice, you know. The the, the medicine has to uh, get the process going. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know anybody who's not on meds, who's got a clean diet, who can't take 250 milligrams and, uh, and feel it. But yeah, there's I'm sure there's always... Uh, some uh, exceptions to the to those rules sure so what's the future for the church i know that you recently changed the name from the church of Salama fox into the church of sacred synthesis following this this kind of controversy i know you said it was it was planned but it's obviously a bit of a coincidence for that to sure. be the timing 
Sure. And sure, it's really turns out it's more, uh, yeah, it's more response to what we didn't see that was coming, right? So the church's original name when we filed is the Church of the Sacred Synthesis. And then we had some uh, assumed names, which uh, were going to help us in the, you know, working the church. And one of those was the Church of Somethoxin, since putting the name of the sacrament in the church <laughs> gets, gets straight to the point. And uh, yeah, so we had planned to go back to the Church of Sacred Synthesis. Now that everybody knew that Silmathox and our church were all you know, all one thing after the entheogenesis event. And uh, yeah, and then uh, the you sound a time their article, yeah, with perfection to come out Thursday before our Saturday party. <laughs> Another and, coincidence. Uh, oh, exactly. So it's more it's more that yeah, we were. Uh, yeah, we didn't see that coming, and we were planning to change the name. And, they, and then it looks like uh, everything we did was uh, in response to them. So, so, so well, well played to them. And because uh, you yeah, got and criticized we did, it, it, quite a lot, right? For the for the statement you guys put out as well, it was it was pretty yeah, pretty charged. Yeah. You, you guys were triggered, yeah. right? Well, I mean, they were trying to elicit a response from us, right? Like to push us to the edge of the contrast. And uh, yeah, Greg wrote the legal part and uh, Adam Adam wrote the scientific part uh, because their they're, they're whole report's like, a, how dare you do that? That's our realm of, of, of wizardry. And uh, we said, oh, well, it's pretty easy just to call you out as far as your, your motivations. Uh, and that you're not doing the same stuff you're doing that you're not doing the same uh, level of uh you know stuff as your is your scientific studies uh yeah so i i i found the whole thing uh really uh yeah amusing right you know big successful you know uh <laughs> company has to pay attention to church church guys doing this in their bedroom uh you know growing patentable uh novel tryptamines yeah. a true david and goliath story but ultimately yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it takes one it, take, it takes 1.3 billion dollars right to commercialize a drug so clearly you can't think of the people when you're thinking of the investors and the shareholders right i mean it just it just can't it just can't work that way and if there's going to be 10,000 tryptamines in the next 18 months that the guy who predicted the fentanyl crisis 20 years ahead I'm I'm listening to that guy. It seems like the the biotech revolution is at hand. So, uh, I I don't know I don't know what kind of game they're playing. The biotech companies that I know about, they want to get their client for the molecule. So they're like they're going to grow ibogaine for you in yeast, and you want to, they want you to be like their their one customers. Methicin and methicin, they're like one one oxygen molecule different than silamethoxin that they put out in the scientific paper published by Adrian Sherwood, same guy who wrote the USANA fungi article. I mean, it's quite possible that they were concerned that you guys were selling something that wasn't what it said it was, especially if it does include, as we said earlier, trace amounts of mostly illegal um, drugs. Well, again, hence we're a church and <laughs> we're not denying that our sacrament is the psilocybin mushroom fruiting body. That's our vehicle that we're pouring the holy salt into. And 
Yeah, it's only because of the drug war and the scheduling artifice that uh, we have to prove and defend and explain our faith, right? Uh, And that's nuts, dude. I mean, like, this is the 4th of July in America. If a cow is, I live in Bastrop, Texas, and if a cow poops in my yard and a mushroom grows out of it, how can the government intercede in that reality and and that and that's where we are besides the fact that in the u.s dmt and 5-meot dmt are schedule one drugs inside your body so everyone is a citizen or otherwise is guilty of a felony but by default and uh that sounds like some kind of super scary sci-fi movie and is it is this why you kind of because you got into law not necessarily with a view to kind of defending and indeed creating because it's not just your own that you've played a hand in creating in terms of an entheogenic church you 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 and greg lake also helped folks set their set their own up um but how, how long were you a lawyer until you kind of got into this realm what, what were you doing before kind of intellectual property for pharmaceutical companies presumably <laughs> well that's the thing i was doing uh you know the pharmaceutical gig right and then in law school i did study intellectual property and in law school that's where i dove into the medicines. And while I was in law school, I wrote an editorial about the war on drugs. My first year in, I sat with uh, my mentor uh, with peyote with the Native American church in in Oklahoma with the uh, uh, Cheyenne and Arapaho uh, Indians. And I went to Mexico twice for the Botanical Preservation Corps uh, event, Terrence McKenna and all his other speakers for a whole week and the second year I went I got I filled out and got a scholarship to go and they're like okay why do you want to you know go to our deal and I'm like I want to become an entheogenic attorney where in the future I do three things I want to help people create other psychedelic churches besides the UDV and Santo Daime I want to do uh, legalization which we now call like decriminalization (laughs) And I want to do the medical stu- support the medical studies so that we can have these uh, substances accepted into society. So that was in 1997, right? So I wasn't like, oh, cool, I'll go to law school and become an, you know, I was like in law school, I'm like, cool, I'm going to be an entheogenic attorney because of course there is no such thing. Uh, I'm like, I'm going to become an IP attorney and see how I can do that in the corporate world. And uh, yeah, the entheogenic attorney thing, clearly was something that was going to uh, come later. And I, there's no way I, I could have uh, predicted any of this or seen any of it or, yeah, expected any of it. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it, it's a good thing. And I'm the, the church is the way, the church model that we're given under the First Amendment is the way to get the medicine to the people because otherwise we're just going to wait too long while, while people are unnecessarily dying. So. Yeah, and you spoke very passionately about that the entheogenesis event i mean 44 veterans a day is the is the upper estimate of yeah the suicidality going across the states at the moment and while you know the va have done some kind of ketamine pilots that i think one or two of them have turned into full-blown insurance schemes recently correct me if i'm wrong yeah yeah, there's there hasn't been yeah it seems from my perspective in a living room in Southwest England, like a really, really, really fucking big effort to stop this in its tracks. And that's why folks are attracted so much to the psychedelic medicines, especially 5-MeO and Ibogaine, 
because it can really just turn things on a sixpence. Even even if folks really do need to do the integration afterwards and really be committed to changing their life and maybe even getting on a kind of yogic path if they want to kind of sustain the benefits of their psychedelic therapy sessions. Amen to everything you said. <laughs> well, I mean, that's we're not going to have much of a conversation, much of a podcast if you just say a amen. But I mean, yeah, maybe, what's maybe good? There's you, you, more, you said, no, you said a bunch <laughs> of stuff. If you asked me a question, then you just kind of, uh, yeah, you kind of kept going with it. So. Oh, yeah, I guess I like, you. So go ahead. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. So what, what are your plans for the rest of the year? I know you're going out um, toad hunting soon. Yeah, yeah. So we went last uh, summer and worked with the toad Jedi's been out there. This will be his sixth season living with the toads. Yeah, and just, uh, you know, seeing them in their natural and otherwise semi-natural habitat, really, or, you know, in the Tucson area. And, uh, yeah, learning how they live and getting to, uh, yeah, ethically, responsibly uh, milk them. So. so some people, many people, seem to object to the milking of the toads for various factors. Uh, there's serious conservation concerns coming up because of the way that folks are kind of snatching them by the hundreds and bagging them up and not putting them back in the desert because they want to milk them for everything they've got in a more lab environment where they can do it quicker. And then there's obviously the cartel on the southern side of the Mexican border that kind of control the trade and some of the local pickers or milkers rather have faced the threat or actual violence for various reasons, not paying their taxes, being in the wrong place at the wrong time. But you use synthetic 5-MeO for the sacrament. So do you want to just give me a little bit of insight into your moral compass, I guess, on this issue? Sure. That's that's an excellent question. So, uh, yes, it, and this is all kind of like you get into, uh, you know, where where is the source of these things? But, yeah, we use plant-based sources of melatonin, and then you can convert it in a two-step process to 5-MeO-DMT. And yeah, and 5-MeO-DMT is not illegal in the, uh, right, in, in Canada or, or Mexico. So uh, you can make our sacrament with plant-based sources of melatonin. And uh, we ultimately believe, I can see why people are like, I don't want to touch the toads. That's legit. We want to see ultimately 5-MeO DMT uh, from, uh, you know, from yeast, from bioreactors. It's totally easily doable. And then you have an unlimited source and no uh, animals have to suffer at all. There are companies, I've talked with them in the Europe that have uh, toad glands in the lab. They have They've harvested right the you know the uh, DNA from toads and they basically grown organelles in the lab where they can make five meo DMT from that. That's not a source of five meo. I think they're doing that for 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 drug development. Uh, but ultimately, five uh, meo can be made from uh, yeast uh, today, and that's the future way that it'll be created, and that's the most uh, green and sustainable and. Uh, yeah, we want to inter interact with the toads and see how they live, right? And yeah, we're not uh, 
um, morally opposed to milking them. So we want to then show how it can be done in a uh, responsible and caring way. And yeah, people can certainly look at that and go, yeah, that's, you know, a violation of the toad's sovereignty or it doesn't like it or any of those things that that's, that's all legitimate. And uh, we're just trying to experience if we can interact with them right in a way where we can, uh, yeah, receive their sacred medicine without them uh, uh, being negatively impacted or harmed and, uh, and, and then go from there. But yeah, ultimately everyone's 5-MeO is going to come from, uh, yeah, yeast-based bioreactors. And in your experience, is there any difference between the toad venom bufo and synthetic 5-MeO when it's smoked or vaporized? Sure. I know that's like a big, you know, uh, debate, right? Uh, controversy around that. And for me, the effect of the 5-MeO is basically the same. And yet when you're smoking it from the toad, separate from this issue of the spirit, which is believe is a thing too, of course, yet when you're smoking it from the toad, all those other substances that the 5-MeO is contained in are designed to help those things be absorbed into your body across mucous membranes. So when you smoke the toad, it seems to be really efficient as far as getting across the blood-brain barrier. And uh, I think that's something that's really uh, useful because when you're smoking synthetic, if you go too far, you can, uh, you know, get too much. You can, you can white out effectively. And yet you can also do super precise dosing. So I think the real benefit of the toad is you are getting the medicine if it's ethically sourced in a good way. And then you can really dial it in because you can't uh, take too much and it really helps get it across the blood-brain barrier. So that getting out of your own self-consciousness, I think, is a real sweet spot that the, the toad can uh, deliver. Yeah, and you talked about just like the, the the ethics and the politics and, you know, the cartel and all this is, yeah, there was a uh, collector two summers ago in Mexico that was killed. It was, he was mur murdered after being tortured because he was caught, uh, you know, milking toads uh, in cartel controlled area. And uh, yeah, now that place, that sanctuary uh, is pays the cartel monthly you know to be able to uh to operate there and uh that's you know that's that's really nuts <laughs> yeah yeah it is really crazy i mean mexico is just a whole nother ball game to life out there up in arizona apparently there's about 200 collectors in arizona and all that medicine's just staying inside their medicine circles and it's uh yeah based based there in arizona mm-hmm so, yeah, just finally, where do you see the direction of travel going for the Western psychedelic revolution? And what, what part does your church play in, in this whole picture? Sure. Again, I think we're, our, our church is just an example of what churches can and exist to be able to do, is get the medicine to the people in a safe, responsible, uh, efficient way. And uh, yeah, we were at the MAPS conference. I mean, it seems like the psychedelic revolution is not going to be cheap to get into. And so uh, if everyone's going to adopt it, if uh, whatever the numbers are, like something, you know, about two thirds of Americans can't afford a $1,000 a month bill that just came in that they didn't expect. So that's what it costs to go to the MAPS conference. 
And so, yeah, if, if we're going to go from a healthcare model to a model where you still got to pay a bunch of money to do it, I don't think that's a real grassroots way to do uh, community healing. And if you can grow mushrooms and cannabis and then uh, add extra things to your mushroom substrate, it seems like you can get all your healthcare at home without waiting for these drugs to uh, come that are you know natural come through the FDA and the, the pharmaceutical industry hasn't invented a new central nervous system drug in the past 20 years because the only ones to to invent are psychedelics so uh, they're trying to uh, get in that business and uh, the churches are just getting the medicine back to the people the churches are saying look this craziness where there's a controlled substances act where i've schedule one drugs in my body is nuts and we have to Take that off us and put it back in the government. It's got to be the government on the defensive. It's got to be the government's burden proving that we're uh, harming the public interest when they're not serving the public interest. They're serving the interest of the shareholders by withholding the medicine. And, you know, I don't know. Karmically, Joe Biden is, is uh, you know, he's the three strikes you're out. He authored the Substance Analog Act with Strom Thurmond. So, you know, it, it, it's going to be interesting to see if it'll rise to the level of this being a campaign issue where somebody's going to win or lose on uh, psychedelics as healthcare. So I just hope our church is just really an exemplar that other people that are already doing it or want to do it and be like, okay, great. Churches are a useful vehicle to safely and efficiently get the medicine to the people. So, but to, to, I'll say that, uh, you know, we're going to be. Like I loved it as your little video said, uh, cinemathoxin. But yeah, cinemathoxin and all these other tryptamine analogs that William Leonard Picard is talking about are going to be available through uh, bacteria and yeast you know, through enzymes in the next uh, yeah twelve to eighteen months. So the the psychedelic revolution is really whatever I don't want to say what you're going to get maybe co-opted by the biotech revolution because it's going to deliver it to the homebrew end user which I think is the whole uh, goal of this from my perspective. So. Amazing.